Well, good evening. Uh, if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. You're going to be there. Those of you who are perhaps uh, in from out of town, I know there's a few of you, or perhaps uh, you haven't been here for a while, we are working through the book of Acts. We are going through basically our church history. Acts chapter 17. So, a few months ago, I had the privilege of, of leading someone to the Lord, and that's a miracle. Um, anytime someone gets saved, it's a miracle. Um, you're taking someone that's spiritually dead and making, God is making them spiritually alive. That's, that's miraculous. This person that accepted Christ as their Savior was uh, very eager to grow. They were studying the Bible, they were learning a lot, they were being discipled, and it was neat to just get random text messages from this person. Uh, when they sent text messages, usually they're of theological kinds where they were asking about God, they were asking about something they were reading in the Bible, they were asking about the discipleship book. Uh, this person in particular is working through the implications of salvation to their family, and how would their family respond? One time, I got a text uh, from this individual, and uh, she was reading in John chapter 6. So I had you turn to Acts chapter 17, but in a moment, I'm going to have you turn to John chapter 6. Now, she was reading through John chapter 6, but she was talking about Jesus' offer of the gospel in John chapter 6. So at the beginning of John chapter 6, there's thousands of people that are following after Jesus. And he feeds them all. I mean, all of them. And then after he feeds them, he decides that he and the disciples are going to go elsewhere. And so they go elsewhere, yet he remains behind. There's a storm as the disciples are in the boat. Uh, the storm becomes great. They fear that they're going to drown. Jesus walks on the water performing yet another miracle, gets in the boat, calms the storm, rebukes their lack of faith, and then they arrive at the other side. Only to find these thousands of people following after him. Yet the tone of the story through John chapter 6 changes because you have these miracles where all of these people are seeing Jesus do incredible things, but then they sit and listen to him teach. So if you would, turn to John chapter 6. I know you're, we're going to be in, in Acts chapter 17, I promise. But I want you to see what, what this individual saw. Okay, so John chapter 6, <clears throat> verse 35. Jesus said to them, and this is Jesus teaching these thousands, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Well, this is great. Jesus is inviting, he's telling, uh, he, he's inviting them to receive his message. Verse 41, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down in heaven. They were looking for literal bread. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This individual who's reading, Jean, or I'm sorry, reading John chapter 6, as she's reading, she comes upon these verses and she says, Okay, so here he is, Jesus, giving the gospel, and yet at the same time, he's giving the gospel and he's inviting people to come, and yet at the same time, no one can come to him until, unless God draws him. And in fact, when you look at the beginning of 
John 6. There's thousands. You look at the end of John 6, there's a dozen, and even one of the dozen is an unbeliever. Why doesn't Jesus save all of them? He can do that, can't he? Because, and this was her text, I'm walking into Panera, and I'm looking at people a whole lot differently than I did yesterday, and I don't know that I like it. And then she, she used the phrase, are these people being treated like hospice care? Like, you know, people who are about to die, but basically God gives them, or, or they're given food and water, you know, just to kind of make them comfortable before the end? Is that what Jesus is doing here? Those are tough questions. No, Jesus isn't giving hospice care. But at the same time, why doesn't he save all of them? Why doesn't he save all of the people that you're praying for? So go back to Acts chapter 17. So tonight, we are going to tackle once and for all the issue of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. You will never have any questions or any doubts about God's role in salvation and man's role in salvation. No, that's clearly, uh, it, it's been debated for years. It will be continued to be discussed, I should say. But in Acts 17, we see how two aspects of God's plan, his sovereignty and man's responsibility work hand in hand as the gospel goes forward. We're going to see how they both work hand in hand as the gospel goes forward because they're both part of God's plan. Now, um, I'm going to show here, and I, I've done this several times already, uh, a map of what's going on leading up to this event. Okay, so this is Paul's second missionary journey. He's gone on one missionary journey already. He's gone, visited several churches, planted several churches. Now he is heading to uh, further west. Last week, if you were here, we read about how John, or I'm sorry, how Paul and how Silas were wanting to travel to certain areas, but the Holy Spirit forbid them. And instead, opened a door to head further west. In fact, further west than the gospel had ever gone. A place called Macedonia. And in particular, a city called Philippi. And there, Paul and Silas were able to lead several to Christ. God started a church there in Philippi. In, in Acts chapter 17, Paul continues to travel, but now he's traveling further west and further south. He travels to three different places in chapter 17. Thessalonica, Berea, and then Athens. Now, as we're reading, I think that having visuals, having a map, and being able to have this visible, if it ever becomes visible, it's, it's pushed in there. Nick did this last year, so or last week he had it, so I'm going to push it in again. Right, there we go. I promise it's in there, Nick. If not, we'll just default to the Bible maps. It's okay. It's okay. It's, it's, you have maps in the back of your Bible. Let's do that. Turn to the back of your Bible. You have maps? Okay. Is it coming? It's still plugged in. I haven't done anything. So, If you have maps in the back of your Bible, okay, like, I have one in the very back that says Paul's first, second, and third missionary journeys. I think it's helpful to take cities that I can barely pronounce and see them on a map to actually see where the gospel's going. Okay? So, the gospel's heading west. Paul and Silas are taking it. They've crossed over into Philippi, and now they're traveling to Thessalonica, and then further south, the city Berea, and then eventually even further south to Athens. Okay? So you can see just how far the gospel message is traveling, how far west, and how in these particular areas, churches are being planted, they're being started, because people are accepting the gospel. Paul is staying there. He's helping to disciple, and then moves on. Now, in Acts chapter 17... 
Like I said, there are three churches. We're going to spend the majority of the time talking about two of them and alluding to the other one. For sake of time, we're going to be talking about Berea and Athens. And really, Athens isn't so much a church. It's more of an evangelistic opportunity for Paul. But in those two particular instances, we're going to see God's sovereignty and human responsibility work hand in hand. So what I want us to do is look at verse 10. Let's start in verse 10. They faced some persecution in Thessalonica, and as a result, they had to be forced away. And so in verse 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, this first instance, Paul and Silas in Berea, in my opinion, illustrates God's sovereignty. So if you're taking notes... God's sovereignty is seen here by virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit is always ahead of our evangelistic efforts. Okay? God's sovereignty is seen in that the Holy Spirit is always ahead of our evangelistic efforts. You say, how is the Holy Spirit ahead in here? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 11. Now these, these Jews that Paul and Silas visited in the synagogue in Berea, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women, okay, and men. The Bereans here are described as being more noble-minded At least this translation uses noble-minded, especially compared to other Jews that Paul had witnessed to. Just earlier in the chapter in Thessalonica, the Jews greeted Paul with a lot of antagonism. This is a theme running throughout the book of Acts, where Paul would go to a particular area, would share the gospel in the synagogue to start off with. Some Jews would respond favorably. Many would respond unfavorably. And in fact, Not only would they respond unfavorably in that town, but as Paul and his companions would move, they would follow him. And that's exactly what happened here. Verse 13, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea, also they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. This is the exact same thing that happened earlier in Acts chapter 13, Pisidian Antioch, Acts chapter 14, and Iconium overflowing to Lystra and Derbe in Paul's first missionary journey. Now, when we see, or perhaps when we hear of the Bereans, if you're familiar to Christianity, if you've been a Christian for a while, you hear the Bereans as you know, good examples of those who search the Scriptures. I mean, that phrase that comes up in verse 11, they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures. And so we, you know, perhaps we're told we need to be like the Bereans. Well, the fact is, is that these Bereans who were examining the scriptures were unbelievers. Okay, when we look at the text, we don't see believers examining the scriptures. We see unbelievers examining the scriptures. You say, unbelievers? How so? Well, look at verse 12. After they had examined the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And oh, by the way, that shouldn't have been a foreign concept to the Jews who had the Old Testament scriptures available to them, who recited them each Sabbath, who followed them when participating participating in the sacrificial system, who listened to them as the rabbis taught. It shouldn't have been a foreign concept to them. Verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed. So the belief into salvation was after they had examined the Scriptures in comparison to what Paul was doing. So lest you think that somehow these Bereans are Christians or people who had accepted Christ already, and then when they heard Paul's message, they are thinking, Yeah, we agree with that, but we need to go to our Bibles and make sure that this is true. Actually, it's the other way around. It's people who are studying the Old Testament, and when they hear Paul preach of Jesus Christ, they're connecting the dots. Aha. 
this Jesus is the fulfillment of everything we've been doing and learning. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. That's what's happening. You say, okay, wait a second, though. God's sovereignty. The Holy Spirit is always far ahead of our evangelistic efforts. Where do we see this in this story? Or this, this, where do we see this in Berea? Do unbelievers in and of themselves desire to study the word so that they might draw on knowledge in order to have a closer relationship with God? Is that something that's natural to unbelievers? The answer is no. That does not happen. Unbelievers don't, in and of themselves, they don't intuitively desire things after the Lord. In fact, unbelievers being dead in their sin are unresponsive. It is a work that God must do in their hearts in order to respond. Now, that being said, we see this theme running throughout the book of Acts. Say, where so? Okay, so let's very quickly turn back to Acts chapter 13. This shouldn't be something that's unfamiliar to the reader of Acts as they're working through. Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas, they're sharing the gospel. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So there's a dual activity there. There's an appointing by God, and there's a belief by man. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Here's Paul and Silas in Philippi. Verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And she and her household are baptized. God works on the hearts of individuals to open them, to cause them to welcome the gospel and to respond in faith. And so when these Bereans are studying the word, really they're fulfilling Romans 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. And how will they hear if there isn't one to proclaim it? So faith comes by Hearing, hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God was being read by these Bereans. God was working through His Word, opening their hearts and leading them to salvation. And so when Paul and Silas come and they preach the Gospel, here they are. A tilled up field ready to cultivate fruit. And who's doing the tilling? The Holy Spirit is. God uses the scriptures. They are living and active and the Holy Spirit drawing souls to himself. This really is the true spirit of revival. Okay? When you study church history or you look even at the United States history, you look at some of the, the great awakenings, the first great awakening especially, revival that takes place. It's a movement of the Holy Spirit in conjunction with the preaching of the word. It's God's work. We can't conjure that up. We can't manufacture it. And in fact, devastating consequences result from trying to manufacture it. In fact, there's a fine line that sometimes can get crossed between manipulation and gospel presentation. Because all of a sudden, the one doing the work, God, gets displaced and man puts himself in his place. And it becomes manipulative. And that's not the work of God. The Brians weren't manipulated. The Brians were being convicted. And the Brians were reading God's word. And they were saved. And if you accepted Christ, that's how you were saved as well. Through the word of God and through the working of the Holy Spirit in you and your belief.
Okay? God is sovereign over the salvation of souls. And really, the fact that he saves any souls is miraculous and a work of his grace. We see the Holy Spirit drawing men to repentance, but we also see the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that all are without excuse. We read that in John chapter 16. Okay? How grateful we should be that God extends his grace to incline our hearts to the gospel. Why aren't we as hard-hearted as the soul who continues to reject the gospel? And in fact, if we really assess ourselves, we were just like the rabble-rousing Jews who were going from town to town, stirring up the crowds against Paul and Silas prior to salvation. That's what we were like. That's what I was like. I was an enemy of the gospel. And the only way that could change is if God changes me. Okay? Have you ever had the opportunity of training someone at work? Ever had, any of you have the opportunity of training someone at work? Okay where you, you were responsible for, for bringing them in and teaching them? Any of you ever trained someone to do something they had never done before? Have you done that? How many of you thought that was really fun to do? Okay. Maybe it is. That's fine. When they've never done something, sometimes it's actually better to train someone who has never done something before than it is someone who's actually done it before and thinks they know the right way to do it. Because then you have to, you know, said the electrician, there's lethal mistakes that can be made when you don't do electricity right. But when you have someone who's never done it before, they have no experience whatsoever, and you're walking them through the steps on how to understand what it is that they're going to do. You're, you're training them. You're, you're treating them as if they've never heard this before. Okay? Versus perhaps someone who transfers within the company, who has done this before, and perhaps has done it quite well. There's a knowledge. There's a familiarity. And when you're telling them about how to do X, Y, and Z, they're prepared. Can I tell you that when you and I have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, the Holy Spirit is far ahead of us. So I am never the first person to testify to this individual of the truth of the gospel. I'm never the first person. The Holy Spirit is always there ahead of me. I mean, think of that. I can never get ahead of God. I mean, is God ever surprised that, oh, wow, that person got the gospel today? <laughs> Better scurry on him. No, no. He's always ahead of me. Always ahead of me. And so when I share the gospel, or when you share the gospel with that particular individual, there's a sense to where it's almost like having someone that's been trained, and when you're giving a message, there's a familiarity. Now, whether, they're not, whether there's a welcome to that or an antagonism to that remains to be seen. But there is a sense to where Romans 1 is very true. That through the invisible things of creation, man can clearly see God's eternal power in Godhead so that he is without excuse. So that when I share the truth of the gospel, the truth of God being the creator, God made you, God made me. The truth that my sin and your sin messed it up. And I know that I sin. And you know that you sin. Those things, the Holy Spirit's already testifying to that. And so, when we show it to them in, in the Scriptures, it's there. And we pray that their hearts would be inclined to that. Emotionally and positionally, I should trust God that what I am sharing is landing on fertile ground. Because God, like we said in past weeks, Right? Where is God sending me? God's sending me. And who is God bringing to me as I'm being sent? None of those are accidental. All of those are within the framework of God's plan. So you have God's sovereignty. The Holy Spirit is far ahead of my evangelistic efforts. Okay? But then you also have human responsibility. And we see that in this next section of Acts chapter 17. Man's responsibility. Okay? So I'm going to quote the great theologian, 
Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, okay? Mr. Rogers had an interesting quote. He said, if I had to choose, I would rather make a convert than have a conquest. I'd rather make a convert than make a conquest. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. And that's what we see here in this next section. Man's responsibility. A convert is to be preferred over a conquest. Okay? Man's responsibility. A convert is to be preferred over a conquest. All right, so let's look here at verse 16. Well, actually, let's look at verse 15. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come as soon as possible, they left. Now, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Now, let's stop there. Notice the verbiage there. So he was reasoning in the synagogue. Look back at verse 4 of chapter 17. We didn't read this. This was a section over Thessalonica. But look at verse 4. Paul is giving the gospel to these Thessalonian Jews in the synagogue. And verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. Christians, here, Paul and Silas, are called to persuade. Jews and Gentiles were persuaded in verse 4. Paul was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Now, how did Paul attempt to persuade? And so we have this event that if you're familiar with the, this, this particular passage, this is Paul on Mars Hill, where he's talking to very pagan individuals, where there's idols all around. And Paul is taken before this Greek council called the Areopagus. Okay, these wise people who enjoyed a primitive form of blogging, which is they love to share ideas with one another and they love to get new ideas constantly. They just didn't have the technology. It was like verbal blogging. Okay? What new ideas are out there? What new thoughts are out there? And so Paul is brought. Why? Because he's persuading. He's reasoning with people. Reasoning with them about the gospel and about, in particular, the resurrection. Something that would have been absolutely unfamiliar and illogical to these Greeks. You know, think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember how Jews, to Jews, Christ and the gospel would have been foolishness, but to the Greeks, or I'm sorry, to Jews, it would have been a stumbling block because, you know, what's a Messiah that ends up dying? That's not the Messiah they were looking for. But to the Greeks, and according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Jesus would have been foolishness. Foolishness, why? Not just because of his death, but because of the resurrection. The resurrection was something that was absolutely foolish to these individuals. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, like we said, so he was reasoning in the synagogue. Verse 18, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. So what do we know about the Epicureans and the Stoics? Well, the Epicureans and Stoics were very materialistic, meaning that if you can feel it, if you can observe it, it's real. They were very anti-supernatural, and, and admittedly, I'm lumping two groups together that aren't exactly identical, but for the sake of simplicity, you know, we'll just kind of go with it. They're very materialistic, and they are also very much settled on the fact that in this life, this is what matters, and whatever happens in the hereafter happens. But once you're done with this life, you're pretty much free from whatever you've been bound in. So death actually provides a release. Resurrection is kind of like being freed from prison only to walk back and close the door behind you. That's the way they would have viewed resurrection. Why would you come back to life? Once you're dead, you're now either one with all of God, or you're at the very least free from the bondage that your material body has for you. So resurrection, that, that's, that's a foolish concept. And so when Paul is preaching resurrection, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is something that just makes no sense to them. Okay, and we're actually going to see the impact of him bringing up the resurrection in just a little bit. Verse 19, they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are, which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to, e to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, what is Paul doing when he is trying to convert because a convert is better than a conquest. Okay, so to borrow from 21st century vernacular, this would not have been Paul destroying their argument with one sentence. No, this isn't clickbait, okay, where you can click on a YouTube video and see someone just verbally destroy another opponent and just leave them in shambles and, ah, that proved it. Oh, they're so dumb. Paul isn't doing that. And I, I would also say neither should we. The gospel is not meant to be a, a hammer with which we bludgeon our opponents. The gospel is something with which we as believers use hopefully to persuade so that we might see converts, not conquests. So how did Paul do this? Well, first of all, he emphasized what is true. Paul emphasized what is true. Why do you do that? Because all truth is God's truth. So one author put it this way. In the relationship between Jerusalem, which is Judaism, which is you know, the, the, the place of sacrifice, the place of Old Testament law, the place of Jesus being the fulfillment of the law, and then you have Athens, which is the place of paganism, which is the place of um, multiple, uh, a, a plurality of gods, as opposed to monotheism, you have polytheism. What relationship does Jerusalem and Athens have with one another? And one author put it this way, Jerusalem is the capital of Athens. Why? Because all truth is God's truth. And whatever truth that Athens really does hold on to has its source in God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the fact is that these unbelievers did hold on to some truth. And what Paul is saying is, he's starting off by saying, the one true God is Creator and the source of all truth. Let's, look, let's read. Paul, verse 22, stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. I'll, I'll comment on that term religious in just a moment. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Nor is, he, uh, nor is he served by human hands. That's what I just read. Verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets said, for we also are his children." So what these pagans are doing is they're actually borrowing from a biblical worldview. If there's common ground, it's because those idol worshipers have taken the ground out from under those who would believe the one true God. That's the shared ground, and it's God's. So in him, we live and move and have our being. The God of all creation, who from one man all of us come is the one true God, and in Him we live and move and have our being. Now that being said, emphasizing what is true, He also showed them the error by the weakness of their view, or the weakness of their worldview, really. He showed them their error. 
First of all, going back to verse 22, and I'm kind of backtracking here, but I said I was going to mention this term. In verse 22, it says, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious. You know, some might, some look at this and says, well, is that a compliment? And, and truthfully, I think the translation of this word is religious, is a, a great word choice for the English. Because when we hear the word religious, it's kind of vague, isn't it? Like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I mean, in one sense, you know, in some places, it's translated as very religious, like devout. But in other places, it's translated superstitious. So if Paul is going in and saying, I see you're very superstitious, you know, all of a sudden he's throwing blows. I'm going to destroy your argument. That's not what Paul's doing. But nor is he saying, we have so much in common. Look. We can get along. Paul's not doing that either. Remember, two chapters earlier, he's tearing his clothes along with Barnabas because people in Lystra were trying to sacrifice to him as a Greek god. Remember? They perform this miracle. They heal the lame man. And then all of a sudden, Lystra, you know, it's Zeus. It's, it's, It's the messenger. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. That's why I said that. It's these Greek gods. And and we're going to sacrifice. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. So the last thing Paul's doing here is being like, yeah, we're buddies. Because in verse 29, he starts to show the distinction. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. All the things surrounding us currently, Paul's basically saying. Everything around here. God's not that. An image formed by the art or thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. They were worshiping in ignorance from the standpoint of there were multiple gods, but without knowledge of the one true God. They mistakenly believed that their gods were material and needed material. Their worldview, like I said before, emphasized the significance of pursuing pleasure and the inevitability, anti-supernatural nature of death. And this was wrong. This was wrong. And so Paul appealed to truth, showed them their error, but then thirdly called for repentance and revealed the consequences of rejecting God. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Paul was calling them to repent from their idol worship and saying that they should seek after God and that all who do not repent would be judged by the man appointed by God. And the fact that that man, Jesus, has the authority to judge because he conquered death. He was raised from the dead. And at that point, the Stoics and Epicureans and all those who thought of resurrection as ridiculous cut him off. This is the longest sermon in the New Testament that's directed towards unaffiliated, un-Jewish people. This is it. I mean, if you think, how should I witness to an unbeliever who has really no religious bearings? If we were to look at the script, this would be it. Now, is it specialized towards his audience? You bet it is. But there is a clear call to affirm what is true. There's a clear recognition of what is not true and a call to repentance. And then when repentance does not take place, the consequences of not repenting. But also affirming the fact that if one does repent, they will find what they are seeking. Why? Because God puts that desire in their heart. But again, man's responsibility. Man is responsible to repent. Now, how did they respond? Verse 32. 
Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite. One of the members of the Areopagus, this council. I mean, this council made decisions that were, in some cases, determining life and death. I mean, this wasn't just a, a group of guys that liked to sit around and talk and discuss ideas only. They were actually given civil matters at times. And they could make decisions as to whether or not fines could be given, whether or not people could be incarcerated, whether or not people were guilty of heresy and could lose their lives. So one of the members of the council converted, along with a woman named Damaris and others with them. And so we see the reality of the gospel presentation. The fact is that the response could be multifaceted. Some sneer and laugh and mock. Others say, you know what? We'll give you another hearing. This is interesting. Others actually repent and believe. Paul is trying to persuade and as we approach the presentation of the gospel, even as we see Paul presenting the gospel in the book of Acts, we see a demeanor that is desiring to persuade for conversion's sake. How different is a conversation when you're trying to persuade rather than trying to prove your enemy wrong? And even consider the verbiage, enemy. Acts chapter 17, verse 4, we looked at that, how Paul persuaded. Acts 17, 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue. Acts chapter 18 and verse 4, and Paul was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Acts chapter 19, verses 8 and 9, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way and before the people, Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. What is successful evangelism? According to what we've been looking at, God's sovereignty and human responsibility what is successful evangelism? The two do work hand in hand. What is successful disciple making? One theologian put it this way. A Christian witness, if he views God's sovereignty in its proper connections, will find nothing in it to hinder the free use of warnings, invitations, and persuasions, either to the converted or the unconverted. So there's that balance. Yet he will not ground his hopes in the success on the pli I'm sorry, he will not ground his hopes of success on the pliability of the human mind, but on the promised grace of God. Who, while he prophesies to the dry bones, as he is commanded, is known to inspire them with the breath of life. So if God's word can bring life to dry bones then God's word can bring spiritual life to the spiritual dead. What is successful disciple-making? What is successful evangelism? It's obedience. It's us obeying. So, earlier on, I made, you know, I, I started off by alluding to a person I was able to, to lead to the Lord earlier on. And, and I'll tell you, it was so supernatural. Like, here's the gospel. And she's like, okay. And God changed her. Just like that. And yet, just within the past two months, I have two individuals who express some similar interest to the gospel. Completely separate from one another, but very much like one another. Two individuals who say, I'm really frustrated, and I don't know where to turn. And so, here's the opportunity for me to offer to study the Bible. Can we study the Bible together? Yes. Both say yes. Praise the Lord. And so, we both start studying the Bible. 
and within three weeks, both politely drop out. Now, there's the part of my flesh that sees the one and sees one as success and sees the other as failure. Right? I mean, isn't that kind of how we view it? We want all people to repent when we share the gospel with them. If we don't, there's something wrong with us. Right? If you're, you have a burden to share the gospel and you pray and you share the gospel and you spend two, three hours and you're just investing in this individual and, and you know, they don't respond, if you don't walk away disappointed, I mean, there's part of you that's like, this is not what you want them to accept. But from a human standpoint, we tend to view it in terms of success and failure. And yet, is there failure when we're simply obeying? I don't know how many spiritual notches that God is going to give you on your belt. But that's not the point. The point is this. God gives us the responsibility for presenting the gospel with clarity and conviction. Sometimes even with urgency and passion. But he does not give us the responsibility for the results. And when it comes to the presentation of the gospel, isn't this what we're most afraid of when we share the gospel? How they will respond? Like, I don't know about you, but I am not so much afraid of, when I had the opportunity to share, you know, it's not so much a fear of, of um, man, I don't know if I know the gospel. And I, I feel like I know it well. I feel like I can, you know, I might stumble over my words. But I'm more concerned about how they're going to respond to it. Are they going to still like me? Are they going to hate me now? Am I going to ruin this relationship? I mean, isn't that what we're kind of afraid of? Especially the people that we see a lot. You know, the one and dones we can kind of live with because if they end up hating us, hey, we're not going to see them again. And, you know, our conscience is good. But it's the people that we see time and time again, right? It's the family members. It's the Thanksgiving meals. It's the Christmases. Oh, I remember last Christmas when they brought that up. That, we're kind of afraid of that. And yet, that's what God has told us that he is in control of. Now, are we obnoxious about it? Does that give us like free, you know, uh, does it give us a blank check, uh, check to, to, to be, you know, just over? The, no. Of course not. There's skill. Especially when we consider that Paul was trying to persuade. But if I can be faithful and I can be obedient, which God has given me the ability to do, God has given all of us the ability to do, then simply by faithfully obeying, I hope we get just as much encouraged when discipleship doesn't pan out the way that we would like it to. And some of you are in that boat where you've started a discipleship relationship, where you've carved out that time, where you have that burden for that individual, and you've never done it before, and you're really nervous, and you get all studied up, and you're like, man, I, I just, God, please give me help, please give me help. And then you go and you start meeting, and it's great, and you see God working, and then it just kind of fizzles, and then you don't see the person again. And there's really from your vantage point, no fruit. It's like, what did I do to blow it? If you can stand before the Lord and say, I did my best. I tried to be faithful to your word. I depended on you and I tried, I wasn't depending on my own strength. Then God gets the glory for that. And you're not a failure. I don't know about you, but that's like a, whew. And when God does honor, and God does see fit to honor our prayers, and when God does see fit to answer them in the form of seeing people converted, then He gets all the glory. That wasn't me. That wasn't my skillful turn of the phrase. That wasn't my winsome personality. That wasn't just how good I am with a fishing pole and how convincing I was when we had our time there. And He really grew to respect me. And, you know, that just, all those things I suppose are, are good and helpful. But God gets the credit, right? God gets the credit. And so we praise the Lord for that. But it's that much more of our responsibility to be praying that God would do that work.
Because if God gets the credit and he's the one that's doing it, then we need to be on our knees begging him for those souls. And when the two fellas that I'm talking about two months ago peter out, I mean, it's really a, a, a check on me. How fervently am I praying for them now? You know, as I'm studying for this, that was one of my biggest convictions. That's how my toes got stomped on studying for this. How much am I praying for them now? They're off the radar screen. We're not meeting anymore. Am I still, am I thinking about them? And can God use other people in their lives? You bet he can. That being said, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, those things don't have to be butting heads. When they have their source at the throne, then we can embrace both, recognizing that God's in control, but we still have the responsibility to proclaim the gospel. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. We don't want to assume that we are the movers and shakers. We don't want to assign credit where credit is not due. But Lord, we also want to be certain that we are obeying. Lord, there may be some here that are fearful of opening their mouths, fearful of what might come as a result. And yet, that still small voice sounds more like a loud banging gong Speak the truth. Speak it in love. Don't just live it. Speak it. God, may we be mindful of how you can change hearts, how through your word and through obedient people, you are saving souls, you're building your church. We love you. We thank you so much for the privilege. Sometimes the privilege scares us to death. Sometimes it's accompanied more by guilt because we think of all the opportunities that we may have neglected or missed out on or maybe even blown. But God, help us to obey today, this week, this coming year, until your son comes. Lord, would that be today? But if he doesn't come, there are still those who need to be saved. There are still those who you're drawing to yourself. Put us in their way and would we, if it be your will, see the fruits of gospel proclamation. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.